Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. When we think about where farmers interact with AgTech, the image that often comes to mind is the farm show, where farmers get a chance to see, touch, witness the latest tools. It's often less intuitive in the tech world to imagine farmers as the genesis of tech and innovations that would work for them. But that limiting belief would be cutting off a great source of ideas. At one time when I worked for Boeing, there was this belief that everybody was going to wear Google glasses and they'd be able to look and overlay blueprints and look at the airplane and work on stuff at the same time. I could see pruning and thinning being very similar to that. That's Sam Godwin, a former engineer and now second generation small tree fruit grower. In this case, apples, pears, and cherries. Sam is from Tenasket in Washington state, where he farms side by side with his brother. They operate more than a dozen individual properties within a 40 mile radius of their home orchards and have built a successful small orchard operation, despite struggling for years against the pressures of continuous growth. One key has been finding a niche. Today, almost 100% of their apples and pears are organic. I spoke to Sam about the state of the Washington apple sector and the future of tree fruit more broadly, with a particular focus on how technology does and doesn't serve small and niche growers. For our first bite at that apple, we discussed the biggest changes in the past 25 years. Here's Sam. When I think about my dad as a farmer, he felt like he had accomplished his goal when he got the crop to the warehouse. He had delivered the product. It was good product. It got it to the warehouse. And then it was someone else's responsibility to liquidate it and turn it into cash in the future. There's very little thought about how that all happened or how that fit. Big co-ops ruled the world and these farmers would work together and then they would take it to the co-op and then some manager at a co-op would liquidate it for them over time. But with this consolidation, co-ops haven't been able to remain competitive because of the inefficiencies of teams of people trying to decide what to do who are probably less qualified than they should be to make those kind of decisions. And so the co-ops have just been falling by the wayside for the last 20 years to the point to where I think there's two or three co-ops left in the state from, from an Apple perspective. That's forced growers to be more business oriented, I would say. So understanding things like what's the benefits or the risk of organic, how do you balance who and what I'm growing what for so that I'm delivering what the market needs or wants. Those are all real topics and real things that I think the progressive farmers are doing now. That yeah. wasn't the case 20 years ago. Would you say that's also a driver of consolidation because those who aren't going on that journey are being gobbled up by those who are, or would you not connect those dots? I think a lot of the consolidation is really being driven by access to capital. You have farmers that have gotten old with old farms. And so if you're at retirement age and you have an old farm and you really don't have a plan for your children or for anybody to be involved, at some point, nobody wants another Red Delicious. And so they just get driven out of the market because there's no money left and they don't have the capital to replant or renew. So then big guys buy up the prime real estate and then they plant their next big planting of whatever it is. Is the story that Red Delicious used to just be the apple that everyone grew and now it is not like what happened to Red Delicious? Give me the one minute history. Sure. Back in the 70s and 80s, the Red Delicious was the icon of the apple industry. 
that tooth-shaped red apple. That was an apple. And That's a, what a lunchbox had in it. That was, yeah. <laughs> the marketing was phenomenal. And they had convinced the world that was the premier premium apple. And in that time frame, it was because it had a thick skin. It would deliver anywhere. It was always edible. It was an amazing product for a lot of years. But then designer apples happened. And the big change... I believe that with all this genetics and these new designer apples is suddenly people had choices. So flavor profiles and color appeal and different textures and all that kind of stuff awesome. became in vogue, right? People, consumers were craving it. But more importantly, what made the Red Delicious an icon was that you couldn't grow it just anywhere. You needed our cool nights and our climates to get that tooth-shaped apple. You couldn't do that in New York or Pennsylvania or Michigan. So it gave us an advantage because we had convinced everybody that was the golden egg and nobody else could replicate it. But now suddenly galas are here or Fuji's are here and they can grow galas just about anywhere. And they look the same. They taste good. The consumer can't distinguish the commodity from where it came from because it's very similar. The marketing of Red Delicious tied to the region, or that was just an implicit benefit that the region got? Was that part of the value proposition? Yeah, it was absolutely tied to the region. It was Washington Apple and the Washington Apple logo. And, and it was an inherent part of the region of North, or North Central Washington. And quite honestly, that was the undoing of the Red Delicious was in the 80s, there were large projects to put irrigation water into the southern half of Washington, the Columbia Basin districts and all that. And so all of that used to be sugar beets and other annual crops that didn't require as much water. Hmm. But when they put in all these water projects, suddenly they were planting trees and they started growing red delicious because that's what everybody wanted. And lo and behold, you don't get the same kind of red delicious in the desert as you do up in the mountain valleys. Suddenly they're round and they're not tooth shaped and they're mealy and they're not crisp and all this product came on, but it was of a different quality. And so that started eroding the, the brand and ultimately led to Galas and Fujis and Grannies and all these other varieties getting a foothold. The varieties and the clubs are like who develops the genetics and who owns them. How does that kind of vary? Give me the one-on-one on it's, that. It's all over the map. Yeah. It's literally all over the map. There are some warehouses have their proprietary varieties that they've gone out and captured in Switzerland or New Zealand or wherever, whatever breeding program it might be around the world. And then there's large players like Inza, for example, that have created a market for themselves selling their brand of genetics to growers that they've chosen to partner with. And then you've got the other extreme where you've got Washington State University with the Cosmic Crisp who have their own breeding program and have generated some genetic material that they're propagating for Washington State growers. So anybody with enough money can go buy a variety. Now, the question, is it good enough and unique enough to actually command shelf space? And that's the big question that everybody's asking themselves now because we've gone from a world where... 95% of the apples were red delicious and you had a few goldens and a few grannies in a Rome now and then to a world now where I think there's over 200 different club apples. So there's an immense number of potential apple varieties. And I think most people have decided or agree that 
a large percentage of those are probably going to fail before they ever get off the launch pad. And is the driver of the new varieties tend to be consumer facing attributes or growing attributes or both? There's some of both. Of course, growers always want the friendliest apple they can get because it takes out difficulty in the farm side. And so that's always a consideration. But I would say since the introduction of the Honeycrisp, uh, the power of the consumer has radically changed what is acceptable. We planted our first Honeycrisp in 2000. And at that time, people were removing them because they thought they were too difficult to grow. It would never make it. But the consumer demand and preference was so strong that it just kept coming back and kept coming back. And the money was so good, people couldn't stay out of it to the point now to where it's a major player in the state. Is the transition from one variety to another just grafting or fully trees or it depends or and it, how do you think a, about those? A, it really depends on your situation. A lot of early adopters will graft just because you can transition an orchard much more quickly. But that only works if you have an orchard that's planted in the right format I so mean, that you yeah. can get the yield you need. The other thing is if some genetic programs have preferences. Hey, we don't want you to graft. We want you to plant new trees because we think the fruit's better. Where my head's going with this, thinking about the trade-offs between production costs and consumer value and what are the transition dynamics. There's a couple of places my head always goes in this conversation. One of them is I would love to see the day where the advertisement is you're the first person to touch this apple. Food safety, hygiene, all that kind of stuff. No humans ever touched this. It's all been grown out in the field. It's been handled by machines. It's been packaged by machines and it's put in a little plastic Ziploc bag or whatever it is and delivered to you. And it's never touched until you open it and pull it out, which would be really cool. That'd be a really good feel good story. I think we're a ways away from there. But they do it with medicine. It happens in other industries. So it's certainly possible. Yeah. It's fascinating whether people would really want that or is it too techno, like, oh, but we want it to be natural and robots aren't natural. We want the safety and the cleanliness, but is it too technological for some people? It's There'd be interesting branding questions, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it would change how people look at things, I think, in terms of fruit and produce. What do you see as the drivers on the consumer side? What's the conversation there? Is it sustainability, quality, shelf life, size? What are the current conversations around demand? I would argue that the single biggest conversation with consumers is consistency. When they buy something, if I'm paying $5 a pound for something, I expect to get the same experience every time. So I think consistency is the first thing. And then whatever the flavor profile is of the product you're delivering, they expect that to be consistent, right? If I'm buying it because it's a juicy, sweet apple and it's tangy and dry and crunchy, people are going to be disappointed. And would you say either of those are new? I can't imagine they are. Like that, those are what consumers have wanted for the last 20 years. I think that we're doing a better job of understanding what consistency looks like. I think the other thing is that people in the domestic market, they expect freshness and shelf life. And they expect that when I go and buy this, I'm going to take it home and I've got 
five to eight days to eat it. And it's one I eat today is going to be just as good as one I eat next week. Now, I don't know if that's a fair expectation, but I think that's a really consistent. People expect apples to last. Especially an apple versus a berry or something. Or a pear even. Pears are different. So pears, for example, there's the ripening component. And so consistently having fruit that'll ripen in the same way is really, really important. Because if I take a pear home and I know I put it in a bag and I leave it on the shelf for three days and I open the bag, I'm going to have a juicy ready to eat pear. But if I don't get a juicy ready to eat pear for three weeks, I've got problems. People are going to be disappointed and consumers aren't going to buy the next pear. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't ever verbalized the different expectations with apples. It's like when I buy it, it's ready and it stays ready for longer. And that's actually an implicit part of the value proposition. And it's portable, right? You can give it to your kids. They can throw it in their sack lunch. It's the anti-candy bomb. Give them something sweet and good to eat, but that they can take that's safe and easy to to transport around. Moving to challenges, when you think about the biggest challenges your business faces today, what comes to mind? So labor reduction is a big driver. When I think of labor reduction, I think of picking, thinning, and pruning. Those are the big three. We need equipment that can help simplify, standardize, normalize those tasks, whether it's making people more efficient or it's actually fully automating it. I think those kinds of things are really important. I don't know what happened to it, but at one time when I worked for Boeing, there was this belief that everybody was going to wear Google glasses and they'd be able to look and overlay blueprints and look at the airplane and work on stuff at the same time. I could see pruning and thinning being very similar to that. If you had the algorithms and the AI in place where they could put on the wearable device and it helps make sure that they see the right cuts or the right fruit counts. Those are all kinds of things that I think are reasonable and realistic in our lifetime. The other thing that's important to me is since sustainability and organic is a really big piece of what we do, we always think about the organic implications of how things might work as well. So my biggest chemical expense organically is weed spray, organic vinegar and stuff to help try to slow the weeds down to give the trees a fighting chance. So having in an organic setting, really good weed robots and those kinds of things could be really valuable because I spend tens of thousands of dollars a year just buying vinegar to try to slow the weeds down. Would you imagine that as an organic grower, you spend more on weed management than your conventional counterparts? Is that a fair assumption? Oh, absolutely. It's not even close. If nothing else, it's the labor. So the organic products that we have, they'll last for two to four weeks, depending on how lucky you are when you apply it. So that means at least once a month, I'm reapplying where the conventional guys apply two to three times a year. So just in terms of labor and time in the orchard to do it all, let alone the chemical cost. If I think of the wool industry in Australia, there's build a robot that can shear a sheep, or there's build a suit to make a human better at shearing a sheep. Those are the kind of two parallels, but there's also now people looking at genetics that would make the wool fall off at a certain type time of year. And so that you don't need to shear at all, the wool just falls off. Is there a parallel at all in the apple industry of like genetics or something that's in a completely different vein that people have considered? I think that the genetic stuff in apples is like the non-browning apple and the stuff they've done playing with genetics in apples 
is trying to hit target markets more than per se simplifying farming. It's not like we have Roundup ready apple trees because of the nature of our crops that doesn't really apply as much. But I know there's been a lot of discussion in cherries, for example. What if you had a cherry that would fall off the tree when it was ripe so you could just shake the tree a little bit and catch the cherries? Apples, it's a little harder to imagine that because they're so big, they would be damaged when they fell through the tree. But a similar concept, right? So there's not any kind of, in principle, resistance. It's more just can't imagine currently a solution that would work. Right. How do I change gravity so that apples don't fall so hard? There's lots of times I wish I was an orange grower because I can think of a million ways that I could get oranges off trees. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Right. Just because of the difference of the skin, right? One thing that might be a little bit different as a small farmer, we've been for the last eight to 10 years, we've been really intensive in our transitioning and, and replanting with automation in mind. So we've been removing big old 20 by 20 plantings, 108 trees to the acre, upside down umbrella trees, basically, to narrow high density slender spindle systems, because we know that will be easier to automate than the other type of tree structure. But one thing that's really become apparent to me is just the logistics of when you change your orchard structure So if you think about it, in the old days, I would have 108 trees on an acre of ground, 20-foot middles. The tractors could literally pass each other in the row. Pickers could pick and they'd fill their bins. And it was like a beehive kind of effect as you did harvest. So now we're planting trees that are 18 inches apart, 10-foot drive middle. I literally can't drive a tractor down the row and have a person with a ladder at the same time, because they'll run into each other. There's not enough room. So just how you think about harvest and the logistics of getting the fruit off and all of that logistical side of harvest becomes really important. So as a small guy, if Stemilt has a problem and they've got thousands of acres, they can go buy 50 bin bandit platforms and change the way they're doing things. And then they move their platforms around between their thousands of acres and can justify the cost of $50,000 a platform or whatever it is. As a small guy, I've got 150 acres, not 1,000. And to pick it in the time frame I have, I've got to have five platforms or 10 platforms. But when the 100 acres are done, what do I do with those 10 platforms besides pay for it? The solutions in a lot of cases, I think, really simple solutions are even more important for small guys because we're not specialized. We don't have a platform mechanic and a crew of people that just work on platforms. So we've got to be able to do everything everywhere all the time. So keeping things simple, making sure it's reliable. So we're not constantly having to take it to the shop or. The point you made Sam about automation ready orchard configuration. Are you less able to become automation ready as a small grower because of the CapEx and the kind of trade-offs or everyone faces the trade-off of they're not here yet, but we need to start getting ready? I I kind of look at it as a necessary evil. If you're looking at this thing in the 30, 40, 50 year time horizon where you're going to be here, you better be figuring out how you're going to do it. And so as a small guy, we can't go do a hundred acres in one year like us to milk. We do five acres. So it means it takes me longer to get there, but I do it as I have the money and we make it a priority. 
And then if you anticipate over time, you get there, maybe not the earliest adopter, but not the last guy to the trough either. The third thing on my list falls right in line with this, and that is it's got to be affordable to small scale. So in a lot of ways, I think small farmers are really entrepreneurial. That's why they've survived. And so they're really good at piecing stuff together and figuring out ways to maybe do it almost as good, but as a workaround. So technologies that are additive are really important. So if someone has the perfect picking machine and they're going to sell them for $500,000 a piece, and it's all the bells and whistles, it adjusts to row size, it does everything perfectly. A small farmer isn't going to have enough acres to justify a half a million dollar machine. But if I can buy a bin filler and a maybe the front end and put it on an existing platform I have, I can get there. It's sub-optimized, but maybe it works just fine for what I have. And when I look at technology today, I'm going to pick on Italy a little bit because they're really leaders in technology in a lot of ways in the orchard. But I look at their solutions they've come to, like their Revo platforms. I think they're fabulous. I think it's really cool what they can do and how they've really fixed it so it works in all kinds of different terrain. That's one of the things about where we're at is we're in a more mountainous area. So we have a lot more varied terrain. So big, tall stuff that can crunch along through a flatland is great. But on some of our side hills, it's an L&I accident waiting to happen. So self-leveling and all those kinds of things are really important to us because of the varied terrain we have. But when I look at the Italian solutions, they're solving for their labor problem, which is they have an aging demographic. They've got a lot of small family farms, so it's mom and grandpa. And so if I can introduce a piece of equipment that helps grandma and mom and Aunt Susie be able to do a little more work, for longer during the day, it's probably the best investment they can make because that's their workforce. Where we're bringing in 20-year-old, 25-year-old, strong, hardworking people, sometimes the platform would slow them down in some of the configurations that are used in other places. So we got to think a lot about what is it we're really solving for? And that's why I said the additive nature of it, being able to piecemeal and pick and choose and add the pieces together to fit your operation because maybe you buy the backbone, which is the platform, and you buy one that can be used for three or four or five different operations on the farm, and then you customize it or you change it over. And so the main guts stay the same, but you put different attachments on it. The last area, I think that the data solutions are really critical for the future. So how do we capture whatever it is we're doing and then have that integrated across the farm as a whole? so that we can make better decisions at the point of the decision. So if I've got to take all this data and send it off somewhere and then wait for it to come back in a report, it's really hard to make on-the-fly decisions like we have to. But if it's an app on my phone and I can pull it up and see how many bugs I caught or whatever it is, that's really useful because that's something that just about anybody on any farm with a pickup truck and a smartphone can navigate that kind of technology now. And then a lot of the leaders, I think, in this area are really coming up as they're providing a service. So I don't have to be a computer junkie and software updates and all of that stuff that it takes to keep this stuff working and talking to each other. I just think the, the companies that integrate and provide that service probably are going to have a good future unless John Deere buys them and kills it or something. You know what I mean? That sure. There's always that risk that someone 
doesn't want the competition for their solution. Is there a trend around transition to organic? Is that growing or? Unfortunately, I think it is growing. (laughs) When we started, everyone looked at us and gave us a side eye and was like, you can't be organic. You don't have a ponytail, the the stereotype, right? But now the big farms have figured out that organic really isn't more difficult. It's just different. And I would argue that what makes organic more challenging is if you make a mistake and you get in trouble, there's no get out of jail card. You can't come in and spray it and fix your problem. You live with your problem for the season. And usually that means you're going to damage fruit and you're going to lose some of your productivity because of the the bug problem that got away or whatever it is, where conventionally you have some other things you can do or tools you can use to help mitigate when you get get into a problem. But everybody's moving that way. Again, consumers have an expectation of more food that is organic. The second thing is our climate. It's really a dry climate. So we're in the tip of the desert up here and we're on the rain shadow of the Cascades. So we have a huge advantage when it comes to disease and pest because they just, they can't survive in the arid climates that our farms are in. And our farms wouldn't survive without the water that we're able to to use in them. The labor and all those kinds of things are challenges, but those are our two biggest advantages. And quite honestly, why organic production works so well for us. It gives us a competitive advantage to most. Are you hearing more conversations from consumers or from a productivity perspective around soil health or kind of climate credentials, carbon sequestration, like any of those kinds of things that we're seeing in other parts of agriculture? For me personally, we're doing things in preparation for an increasingly hot growing region. So for example, I've got trials with nets. I've got overhead cooling. I'm doing things to mitigate for environmental changes not because I think it's totally necessary today, but because I want to understand how it works. Because if things continue to get warm and keep doing what they're doing, those are things we're going to need answers for. So yes, we're changing our practices and we're doing things. Part of it is also the genetics we're introducing. We've got some great new genetics that we're really excited about, but they're more sensitive to sunburn. So guess what? How do you mitigate that? Well, you use nets, you use overhead cooling, use spray-on products to cover up for sunburn Mm. protection. So from a climate change perspective, those are real things that we do. And again, I think it's being mostly driven by new varieties and genetics. And every new variety you find has new problems. So you're working to solve those problems. Are you unique in, if I put up proactively managing for climate volatility as a priority to most of the industry, would they say, no, nah, that's the same thing or, yep, we're all doing that? What no, there's doing? a lot of people who play with it and they're managing light intercept by putting down reflective fabric on the ground. There's yeah. tons yeah. of things doing to try to make trees more efficient in intercepting light, right? It's trying to make orchards more efficient or more productive because you have water and you have light, right? So to your soil health topic, as an organic farmer, I feel like that is... Probably 50% of what I do is soil related because I have to build soil. I can't add additives and play chemist the way they do conventionally. So we spend a ton of time and we test and we are constantly evaluating how do we get the soil growing and alive. And so organically, you're just, you have a much smaller toolbox. My conversation with Sam today left me with so many key takeaways to chew on. 
First was just how different growers, even of the same crop and even in the same region, can be. Maybe it feels obvious that they're not a monolith, but it's worth emphasizing because I think it's easy to fall into the trap that because a group of growers has a similar challenge, in the case of Washington apples, it's labor, that they'll all be interested in or able to adopt the same solution. As an investor, it's something we have to think about a lot. What actually is the market your solution can fit and how hard will it be to grow that market as you add features? I've seen tons of pitch decks that say apple growers are the customer, but I wanna know who specifically is gonna buy your product and get value today. Is it only for the biggest growers with technologists on staff or scale to amortize costs? Does it only apply to regions with certain climatic conditions or supply chain configurations and so on? Another point Sam made that fits well into one of our key theses was around the niche he's found in organic production. Not only has he found a competitive advantage in terms of marketing higher margin produce and finagling unique deals with upstream customers, Sam also understands that his farm's climate and weather situation makes it uniquely well-suited to organic methods. We're big believers in the fact that climate resilient solutions in ag need to have both a productivity and a climate advantage to be successful. So Sam's thought process here makes a ton of sense to me. Though it's possible that the premiums on fruit alone could be enough, the fact that he's enjoying advantages over other organic tree fruit producers too, because of his unique geography, really emphasizes the lesson. And it goes back to Sam's point at the beginning, that to be successful, growers increasingly need business skills to find and leverage these kinds of unique advantages. Finally, I'll flag a small point that Sam made largely off air as a critical one for ag technologists especially. One of Sam's biggest limitations as a small grower is access to capital. He's optimistic that there will be more efforts towards creative solutions that allow small growers, or even groups of growers, to access capital in more timely and flexible ways to make investments that make sense for their operations. And we agree, one of our six investment pathways is embedded finance and risk. We definitely expect to see more here. So that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? Thanks again to Sam Godwin for joining us. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.